This is Shaka Ward Speak. Welcome to Shaka Ward Speak. I'm Gareth Blackwell, and I'm here with Ryan Letario. And this week, we are kind of bringing you part two of uh, interviews with each of us to help you know who it is behind Shaka Ward Speak, but also behind Shaka Ward Space. Um, last week, Ryan interviewed me. We were able to talk about uh, my past, kind of the circuitous route I've taken to get to a career in art and design and what that looks like. And this week, we're going to do the same with Ryan, uh, get a little bit of insight uh, into his life and his experiences. Um, one of our main goals with this is really to show um, the differences that Ryan and I bring to what we're doing. And the fact that um, even though I'm heavily in a design camp and Ryan's heavily in a fine arts camp, there's a complementary nature to the way that we view uh, the fields of art and design in a way that open it up to a lot of different expressions. Uh, so we don't uh, see each other as a threat, as sometimes can be the case within art and design conversations. But instead, we see um, each other as uh, supporting parts to see a bigger picture more clearly. So that's what we're hoping to do through this, is uh, just kind of show the the thinking behind a lot of what we do and the complementary nature uh, that we bring to the table as we explore what it looks like for a gallery to really operate um, in a very productive way with art and design. So uh, welcome, Ryan. Let's get this going. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So um, that was a weird thank you. Thank you, Gareth. I'm oh, sorry. you're very yeah, welcome. Seven. <laughs> so the, the fun thing about podcasts is I can sit quietly and start to go to sleep. And then um, that that state when you're dreaming awake. So I was starting to do that. But well, not because it's just it was soothing. You know, the microphone and the ear, the the um, headphones make it soothing. Right. It is. Yeah. It's a, it's an encompassing sound. That's right. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So the, uh, I guess really to start things off this week, um, I want to go back as far as possible and let's just start with what's one of the first things you remember period in life. What is one of your earliest memories? <laughs> let's just start there. <laughs> That's an amazing question. For real, for real. Like really? Yeah, for real. Let's just wow. do that. Like wow. we let's get a sense of where you started. Like dude, when- I'm a seventies kid. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, memories are like uh things you chew on. So if you chew on them, they they're they're like better than gum, uh, because gum loses its flavor. And memories, depending on how frequently you chew on them, they can hold their flavor. Yeah, but definitely. If, you know, but if you if you don't chew on them enough, they kind of fade. So they need they need to be reactivated. I know there's all kinds of dis- weird discussions on memory, and is it, is it really a photograph that you saw and someone told you the story? And yeah, but I do have um, you know flickers of memories. Um, one one being I've told this story a lot in a different context, but one being specifically for real for real. I was about two years old, and my mother got this toy that she had for when she was a kid from my grandfather, who is an antique collector in Venice beach, California, who was a hoarder and like seven cars packed with stuff. His house was my grand, their, their house was packed with stuff. So, um, like he slept on half a bed and stuff, floor to ceiling, their fridge had stuff, stove had stuff, uh, bathtub had stuff, front yard had stuff. I mean, there was stuff everywhere. And so growing up, that was normal to me. Like seeing that was like, yeah, that's how life is. Like you you sleep on a couch surrounded by stuff to the ceiling. Yeah. Um, I love them. That was wild. And so it was remarkable to my mom that my grandfather found this doll that was important to her in like a toy uh, 
an outdoor toy dollhouse. So she got it and she was tearing up because it was special because my grandfather was kind of a stingy guy and uh, loved him, but he was just a stingy guy. Like he'd hold on to stuff. So um, the shock of getting it. So she gets it, she opens up, she's crying and she tells me about it. And then she tells me not to touch it because if you touch it, you'll break it. It had those rubber band arms on the inside. It was porcelain, like yeah. a QB doll looking thing, like mm-hmm. weird. And so um, we live in this little apartment that had like a one bedroom. And then it ha- I like slept in a closet with an accordion door. Mm-hmm. So like, I, you know, and it was a 70s. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot of yellow sheets for like, like a kind of like a particular kind of 70s, like yellow. Yeah, I can um, see that. Yeah, like shag carpet kind of thing. And, and so uh, she left and I went and fiddled with it. And all I did was touch an arm, the right, the left arm. And uh, it broke. So I immediately ran, hid under the blankets. And uh, my mom comes in, sees it's broken and just asked me like, who did this? And she knows who did it, but was there like, anybody there besides no, it was just you? Me. Oh, okay. So she's and she's like, Ryan, where are you? And I was like, I'm hiding, Mama. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she pulled a blanket over, and you know, I don't remember the specifics of like the like the conversation, but I do know that she had like at some point tell me she forgives me, and you know that kind of thing. But but yeah, so I remember that. I have a lot of memories that are highly vivid because my family life was pretty intense that time. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so it's weird that you, most folks would be like, you can't remember stuff when you're two, but you can, if, if it's punctuated with emotional intensity, oh, definitely it impresses itself upon you. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, uh, I've got a lot of memories like that from early on as well, that, uh, the one constant through all of them is an emotional intensity. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about it, like, uh, it puts a pin in it in some ways, you yeah. know, like doesn't let it leave. Yeah. Um, so you talk about like, I, I like hearing this memory because it's, um, very much, uh, contextualized by, uh, the colors and kind of the textures yep. and, uh, the objects. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting within this conversation. So, uh, growing up in uh, Southern California, like what were those kind of things, those colors and textures and objects? Well, like, what are the things that you kind of remember as sort of totems of, of your childhood in that area? Yeah. So, uh, I think I wrote about this in my, like in my thesis years and years and years ago, but, uh, so I was born in 75 by 1980. I mean, you had, um, you know, my friends were pulling out, uh, cardboard boxes to break dance on. We were break dancing, popping. Yeah. And like rap music was a thing. I mean, I got like 600 rap tapes in my, in my garage right now. So I, you know, like I was listening to, um, like the LA dream team and maybe a little later Houdini, um, mixtapes. I was already doing mix. I was like a kindergartner with mixtapes. Like that That's was legit. Just, yeah, that was a thing. And and then, but then I had like uncles that listened to like uh heavy metal and like Led Zeppelin and like so so. The full story is my my stepdad, you know, was into lowrider cars, and he was coming out of a different context in Pacoima, and you know, um, as a Hispanic man and um. You know, my mom was young, so she probably, I think she had me when she was 18, 18 or 19. I can't remember, but, um, and they met, they met when I was, she was four months pregnant with me. And so, um, I didn't meet my biological father until I was 18. So there's like this kind of interplay there. And, and, uh, so they were pretty wild, you know, they were young. I, I could imagine, like, I can't imagine, I can imagine. So they were into cars. We'd go to car shows, uh, Loretta car shows. So like aesthetically, that was a big thing. I always said that like I felt like if if my parents were in, in any kind of serious fight or argument and it got intense, like like my stepdad was like not the best dude in a lot of ways. 
Um, he had a lot of uh, affairs. Like we'd come home and find him with another woman, that kind of thing. Um, so like uh, I have experiences of waiting, uh, waiting with baseball bats to catch my dad with another woman as a four-year-old. Dang dude. And, and of course he wasn't going to walk into my house with her, but we had found him with women. So, you know, and he was emotionally abusive and he, I have, you know, his physical stuff. And so, so, but then there would be like these weird, um, ways that they, I think they would make up. And so like one of those was going to universal studios. Mm. So that was like our pilgrimage to universal studios. And then, you know, that's like back when Battlestar Galactic was happening in jaws. And, mm. and so you're getting this kind of like false backdrop narrative in Hollywood as a kid, this escape you yeah. know, and, uh, it was magical and didn't require anything of you, mm-hmm. you know? So it was like the magic divorce from reality kind of thing. So you, it's an escape. And, uh, so that was the thing, skateboarding. Like I found my first pro class skateboard, uh, in a bush when I was four, I started riding skateboards. Nice. You know? So I was like riding skateboards, riding bicycles, BMX and break dancing. I was a confused kid. Like my, my dad would, um, you know, it'd smoke weed and uh, come home from work, smoke weed, the construction worker, come home from work, smoke weed. And then like, I'd get out his like little chicken ashtray mm-hmm. and uh, he'd put on like Hendrix. But then like earlier that day, my mom would have like Barry White playing and he'd be like, baby, you know, like this like super deep voice. Yeah. And she'd be like boogieing in the house, like listening to Motown. And so it was a very eclectic environment. That meant that the rules, there was no rules. So there was no like preferential mm-hmm. category that dominated aesthetically. It was like, you know, my parents were pierced. My mom had piercings all the way around her ears mm-hmm. in like 1980. She was ahead of her time as far as tattoos and punk rock kind of looks. And so um, the milieu I grew up in was very eclectic and very much. it. I told someone yesterday, I feel like, the home life that I, I feel like my parents were pioneers in relationship to what's happening now in our culture. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So, yeah. And then, and then, uh, in school, I went, it's, I went to a, a school called Satakoy elementary and it really is true. Like I had a, um, a couple of things that were seminal. I remember this like fourth grade kid who like painted a picture of a cat or an owl or something like that. And it was really good. You know, like I remember being like, whoa, that's what I want to do. And so I saw that and my mom would draw with me. So there was these two things happening. So my mom would draw with me and, you know, we'd kind of vent together when home life was hard and she'd draw these, you know, these kind of funny characters. Like she used to draw this dude she called Harry and then she'd draw like inappropriate genitalia. <laughs> like a four-year-old. I'm like, and so we'd laugh, you know, and so there was humor in, like there was like art was already being charged with multiple expectations, emotional outlets escape. And, and then I go to school and in school art was big. Like they did art walks. So like the first Friday, like we do here, yeah, they did that at my elementary school in like 1981. And so then you would go, you would, they would call it like, it was either like terrific Tuesday or fantastic Friday. And they would, you would just walk around and every class would have art up. And so you do a full art walk. So you'd see what kids are doing ahead of you. And so that was inspiring to me. You know, it's like, and, and people really valued it. And the seminal thing that I've said before a million times, anybody's ever heard me speak, but true story, my kindergarten teacher, I think she saw that I needed encouragement. I was hyper. 
Uh, I was out of control. I was held back one year because I was, an, a, you know, just a rambunctious kid. And, but I had a propensity for art. And so, um, and I think that was partly to do with my mom. And, uh, and so, um, when I was in first grade, uh, she associated myself and two other kids with, um, creativity in the class. And she's like, this class is just doesn't have the same creativity, her, her new class. So she worked with my teacher to have me come back and, and quote unquote, teach her class how to be creative. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah. And so I, I vividly remember that because I did not know what that meant. And I didn't, I just said, sure, I'll do it. And, uh, all I ended up doing was playing with a bunch of kids and going, what if we did this? And, and the thing was, I knew secretly that the other two kids that she was thinking of in my mind were the ones that were the creative. It, I didn't think it was me. It was them. And so there was a little bit of a, an oddity to, it was, a, it was the precursor to feeling like an imposter. I was going to say, this is like a first grade imposter syndrome. Absolutely. 100%. That's, and that's been a thing my whole life. So, uh, yeah. So like I lived in the tension of like, I don't really think I'm supposed to be here, but you know, I'm a kid, like you're a kid. You're like, yeah, I'll do it. I get to get out of class a little bit. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was, uh, but that's, I think that probably saved my life, uh, for the first 10 years. I, that was like a, a wedge. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And, uh, I mean, you're talking about all of this kind of what's going on early elementary school, uh, creativity, um, kind of seeing something that you want to be like and being aspirational towards, you know, seeing this person who painted something that you really liked. Mm -hmm. Um, but do you know like where, like what was the seed of all that? I mean, was it, was it the drawing with your mom? Was it, uh, just seeing, uh, somebody else doing this stuff? Was it, was it like the, you know, the colors and the textures that were a part of that low rider culture? Like, I mean, is there a place you can draw it back to as like a Genesis for where this comes from? No, nah, I think, uh, I would have to just look at it like soil. I can't, and I, I just maybe can't remember. Um, I know I, I was the kid. I mean, the irony of when someone said like my son, Oliver and my daughter, Ivory both will say, I want to be an artist. And they know and don't know what that means, you know? So like right yeah. now, Oliver's really excited. So he's just like, I'm an artist, you know, but he doesn't, he doesn't know what that means. And so I get a good window into like what it was like when I said that by looking at my kids. So I, I know that I answered that question. That was the top of my, my answers. And I'm sure, uh, my family. So my grandfather was an artist also, or, you know, he, he didn't graduate past sixth grade. His mother and brother passed away from botulism. And so, uh, you know, during like the great depression. And so mm -hmm. my great grandfather who ties into the story, he probably is, has some, he is some source of inspiration actually. So he, he moved to California, built a house. He was like, got married at 14 or 16 and 14 to my grandmother and built his own guitar in first grade or seventh grade and taught himself how to play itself. Just a self-taught person comes to California and has a aptitude for drawing. And so, uh, I know that, as I got older, he, I'd peel back layers and learn more about him. He'd tell me things. So like he used to draw on World War II airplanes and paint murals in people's houses like Popeye and old, old school cartoons and stuff like that. So he, um, he, he painted, I saw him painting, you know, I know that those things were around, but he, I, I associated him more for a time as a, as a musician. And so I was around a lot of musicians and, uh, and tattoos. So tattoos were big. So, and then, uh, yeah, now that you're, so also my uncles were just a hair older than me. They're more like big brothers. Yeah. They were huge actually. Like, so they were big. They, they, uh, they would get all the cereal boxes out 
and set them up in a circle. And then we'd have, we'd eat cereal in the morning, have drawing competitions. So we'd have to draw the cereal box. Yeah. Yeah. So that was big. So like, or playing cards or, or, or like we draw maps and, you know, so, so I, somewhere in the milieu it was around. And then I had enough of a aptitude and I had enough people at different ages confirming it to me. Hey, you should do art. Now, whether that was true or not is another thing. But just to say that I just so happened to situationally have a reinforcing environment. And then I was able to make an emotional connection to it as an escape from my difficulties in my home life. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's, you know, it's interesting because, um, so I, I don't remember if I heard or I read, but Jerry Saul said at one time that regardless of, uh, their education, all artists are self-taught. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, what you're talking about is kind of that, right? The foundation for what we do in art or design, it seems to be something that is, is self-taught at an early age. And then at some point we get into a traditional sort of system of education, mm-hmm. right? Um, or maybe we don't, maybe it's, uh, very uh, uh different in some ways but when did um when did a more formal art education begin for you like what what was that thought process of like now this is what i'm going to do versus something else like yeah. how did that coalesce yeah well the way i way i picture it in i think this has you know big implications and trajectory is more like a lattice work and so if you're you're going to grow and if you you're going to grow regardless, then, you know, you're going to sprawl out or you're going to grow up or down or, and so it's a lattice work that you can latch onto that kind of helps to expand out the growth. And then the shape of the lattice work impacts the kind of the way you grow a little bit, I guess. So I, I tend to have that back in my mind. So, uh, you know, I, I entered a, I mean, I got like bullet bullet points things. Like I entered a logo competition for my elementary school when I moved to Moore park in California and got second place. And so like that, that did something, you know, got second place. And that was like cool to me or that, that like, uh, I, I rightly or wrongly look for a confirmation like that. So then, then he moved to, again to Palmdale and I got to work with this muralist and they did a write up in the newspaper in seventh grade. And I was in there and, you know, and then I had this incredible art teacher. So art teachers have always been around and really important. So I had this uh, incredible art teacher named Sass Robinson. And she, um, if I remember correctly, was extremely wealthy from like Beverly Hills. Her husband worked for Ford. I went to her house as like an 18 year old and she lived across the street from like Magic Johnson and down the street from Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston when they were were dating. And I remember being like weirded out because Brad Pitt's house was, uh, the other windows were blacked out. Just remember that, like, you know, and then like Quincy Jones like lived down a ways, like beneath Magic Johnson's home and Man. super weird, but she had like Picasso's in her house and what a crazy, like uh, neighborhood barbecue. Yeah. So she, would, but so Palmdale's far away from there. So she would commute in and we weren't like, uh, you know, this middle-class, poor-class, working-class kind of, kind of folks there. And uh, so she brought an entry point into an art world that was bigger than comic books and Loretta cars yeah, and skateboards, you know? So like that was the thing. Also skateboarding, skateboarding was big. Like, so I, I used to get, um, you know, I was big into drawing on, on, on my skateboards and getting transparent grip tape and mm-hmm. um, drawing on friends skateboards for them. That was a big thing. I used to draw stuff for people like dead Kennedy symbols and suicidal tendency, like weird stuff. But yeah, yeah. Um, 
in rap bones and all this stuff. And then, um, and then finding old skateboards and sanding them down and repainting them. And they were clunky, but you try to get someone to write it. And that, the idea that someone's writing your art, that was cool to me. My parents used to go to Venice beach a ton. So ex- aesthetically speaking, like that was a wild time. It's, it's really tamed now, but it was a, in the eighties, Venice beach was like intense and amazing and scary and amazing. So there's that. And then, you know, then you get into junior high school and Miss Robinson is like bringing a different category to the table. So like in the old paradigm of high and low, which doesn't necessarily apply anymore, but she was giving me a glimpses into the high. Right. And that, that seemed like, Oh, uh, maybe I want to be a painter or, you know, uh, but I still wanted to do, co- I still wanted to do, you know, comic books. And like, there was like always two. see in my, in my mind, there's always these two kids that were always a little better. I could tell you like this kid, Corey Smith and uh, another guy named Mike, I always thought they were like the best. And so, um, you get good at copying and stealing other people's stuff, you know, yeah. emulating, you know, someone does something you're like, Oh my gosh, I want to do that. You know? And you have nobody telling you directly what to do. And, uh, so, and then you go to, go to high school and, and, um, you know, like I had a, I took a test in eighth grade and aptitude tests, see what kind of major you want to have in high school. And I said, I want to be an artist. And, uh, my history teacher, Larry Greatman told me, that I was too good for art and I was taking the easy way out and I was selling myself out and oh, man. there's no point. Yeah. And so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that definitely was like feel my mom was ticked. She was like, he has no right to say that. And, and, uh, those kinds of things are motivating, man. You're like, all right, Larry. Um, sometimes <laughs> I want to call and He's probably not alive now. I'm like, Hey Larry, I just want you to know <laughs> it was, it's, it worked out, dude. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So then you get to high school and high school, more of the same, but different teachers like Robin Young and, um, a few others in, in, uh, man, I was, you know, it's like an athlete at this point. So I was a successful athlete. And so I had a reputation and, um, you know, then I'm doing like photorealistic drawings now and designing, I was designing letterman's jackets. I just got inducted into my high school hall of fame, um, in October for this. So I was doing, um, full montage draw renderings of my friends. And then they were embroidered on the back of Letterman's jackets in the nineties. Oh, dang. And as an athlete that was ranked in the high jump and I played basketball and stuff, I had a reputation. So then I would wear them. People would see them and want one. And so I got an early taste of success doing something that hadn't been done before. And so, um, at every step I had someone in something I was doing that was pulling me in this direction, I guess, from the start. So, um, with the tension of being like, I'm actually not the best person and always feeling unqualified. So, yeah, that's uh I mean, I'd like to say that your story is completely different, right? In in that respect of the imposter syndrome or feeling unqualified, but I think, you know, there's so many of us within art and design that have that kind of space, that that tension, that weirdness. Um, I know a lot of the times uh it gets painted very much as like, oh, this is a super negative thing. Mm-hmm. You know, why why should you, you know, if you feel like an imposter, we need to do something to figure out how to make you not feel like that. Yeah. But I think in a lot of ways it is actually a positive mm-hmm. because it means that you um, you have kind of a measuring stick yourself mm-hmm. that you're trying to live up to. Sure. And that can be hugely defeating at times, right? Mm-hmm. Because we can be harsh, harsh critics much more than anybody else could yeah. be uh, for us. But at the same time, you know, when I started off, like you were saying, when I started drawing, like I had a friend and I thought he just was such a fantastic artist, better than I was. So it was always kind of a can I draw as well as he can? Yeah. And then at some point it became, I need to draw better than I can. 
mm-hmm. or yeah. I need to do this better yeah. than I do. That's right. Yeah, yeah, And I think that's a healthy shift yeah. in a yeah, lot yeah, of ways, yeah. but it's difficult to get there. Right. And it's hard to really uh, work that out. Well, I think there's a tension between what you, what the way you project to yourself an aspirational category of what X or Y is like, I'm an artist, like I'm going to be a painter. And then you have a uh, romantic, you know, un- I'm not all the time. This is just a way of thinking about it is I, th- I guess like I, I could say a couple of things. One is like, I, when I see my kids put my shoes on, they're playing make believe a little bit, but the, the likelihood is they're going to grow into those shoes because right. they, they just are. So there's a, there's a gap between what they're wearing and what, where they're at, but they're wearing it and they feel the weight of wearing it. And they feel the gap at the same time. They're aware of both. And I think a lot of times we put on identities like, like that. And sometimes they don't fit snug yet or ever. And you, you take them off or you keep them on and, and they end up because you, you start to wear it, you start to become, you start to inhabit that uh, identity, if you will, or that sense of uh, what, what you're doing. But also somewhere in there is a, you know, um, sometimes we're a little bit alienated from ourselves. So sometimes we, what we think is going to bring us satisfaction and hope and joy and encouragement and sustain us is in one of these identities. And so you put it on and it doesn't do that. And so then you feel, and you've, you've idealized it. So then you don't feel that it actually is, it's not deficient, but you've made it something it was not supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So then you, you live in the the tension of that and it's, it's difficult because now you're possibly you're, you're injuring what, and now this is taught me talking about myself in a way, but this is like, you, you end up crushing what an artist is in your own mind because you, you never understood what it was to begin with. And instead of conceding that, you just kind of go like, no, this, this isn't it. Like there's something off here. So even when you get what you want, you, you can't, you can't take it in. It doesn't satisfy. And so you live feeling like a bit of a, a bit, a bit of an imposter in many ways. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you're talking about that, it makes me think of, you know, to, to evoke this one more time, uh, like we did last week, but so into the spider verse, mm-hmm. there's that scene where, uh, miles goes into, uh, the store and Stan Lee's character is behind the counter. And he says, he's trying to buy a, Sp- a Spider-Man costume yep. at this costume shop or whatever. And he says, you know, is it going to fit? And Stanley looks back at him. He says, it will eventually more yeah. or less, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. I think it's that, but I think it's in the first moment where a lot of folks say, oh, well, this is the reality of it. This is not a reality we move towards. Right. Yeah. So even though we understand concepts of uh, improvement and learning, growing, maturing, mm-hmm. gaining wisdom, whatever it is, um, I think there's a there's a tendency to be very in the moment so much that it becomes hugely defeating. Um, that, you know, the idea that certain artists like made it overnight, right. Right. Kind of a, it's a very caustic kind of mythology. Yeah. 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 yeah, It's definitely, uh, and you know, artists of different kinds are behind the scenes, like in the broader definition of art. So when you grow up, you don't, you know, when you're like a, if you want to be a musician or an athlete or an actor, they're in your face. You got direct access through the mediums. Now, this is different now because we have the internet and YouTube and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, growing up for me, like most of the time, you you, you weren't going to get a lot of access to artists directly. That So it necessarily became uh, mysterious and mythical because what else could it be? Someone was doing it, but if you can't, you never get to see who it is. You're like, Psh, I don't even know what that means, but yeah. I kind of want to do that. But there's a massive mystery there and you know mtv there was like 
behind the scenes, you know? So like you're getting a deeper look into what it looks like to be a musician, but there wasn't a lot of behind the scenes documentaries happening on hip channels that reach kids on what it looks like to be a painter, you know, like, yeah. um, or, or yeah, to be a gallery artist, you know, like that just, that wasn't there. I mean, I think thankfully in some ways that's, that's more available now because of YouTube and things like that. But mm-hmm. at that time it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. So you, you're just kind of left speculating and you're dealing with other people's uh, sometimes very deficient understandings of an artist. So then you get people affirming maybe behaviors that you have as a kid that, make you feel like your behavior, you know, possibly an eccentric behavior is the grounds that justifies the fact that you're creative. So now you feel an identity pressure to start to, to um, maybe be odder than you really want to be, or it's another set of questions. Now you're wrestling with, cause now it's like, Oh gosh, how do I sustain this? Like how's, if this isn't what my art's going to be about, like, how do I, Good night. How do I figure that out? Which is a real thing. Oh know? yeah. Yeah, you definitely. And I mean, I know that's uh there's a lot of pressure in that respect. And it's always funny because when you try to recontextualize what you're saying there to like any other job that's out in the world, right. like it just seems completely ludicrous, right? Yep. If somebody were to say, Oh, hey, you know, you're very uh uh you're very um interested in a very specific thing and and that makes you look a little different, you should that means you're probably gonna be X. You know, yes. like we, we don't yeah. hear that in any other context, right? Like you don't hear that about, you know, somebody saying, oh, you know, you're very, uh, you, you don't like to talk at all. You're, you're probably poised to be a librarian because it's a super quiet environment. Right. Like we right, would right, hear right. that and just be like, I think, I don't know that you're onto yeah. something there. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Nobody, you know, yeah. You draw a picture and people go, you're an artist, but you don't, you know, you, when you sit quietly, no one goes, you're a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody does that. You know, it's like that you, I know uh, of that you, I know. Of. You throw a football once and somebody's like quarterback destined to be a quarterback destined man. and destined. It's like, this is, I don't know. It's just weird. It is a strange cultural pressure. Yes. Um, that is a difficult thing. Um, but I think in some of it, there is like you were saying, there's like a mysticism surrounding a lot mm-hmm. of it. Um, I even heard one, uh, one person giving a lecture where they, they equated, uh, the art world, especially through modernism to a, a form of like a high religion, um, yes. to the point where the artists act as like Shamans. priests and priestesses yep. of sorts. And they are the ones that have access to the deity exactly. of art. Yep. And because of that, um, we've mystified it in a sense where oh, yeah. we feel like we cannot come into the temples. And when we are, we're totally silent. Right. Um, and the entrance point is the artist that we don't totally understand, but we just kind of have to accept it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, and if that's you out there, cool. Not, you know, but, but, um, it's important to know that that stuff comes from somewhere, um, that that's not, uh, like, like, so for instance, I don't know if like Gentileschi or Velasquez were being treated as shamans, um, or thinking of themselves as such. So that idea comes out of a, you know, an existentialist context. And a a lot of this, you know, a lot of discussion on God and dislodging uh, epistemic access to higher realms from religion and or or what have you. And so and so in the place of that, you get if 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 you can say it safely that religion gives specific ritualistic categories 
and expressive vehicles in, in a set of means and a set of ethics and a set of traditions and behaviors in order to gain access to a higher power, then modern painting had to become unspecific in a way to not be confused as that. That makes sense. Um, but unspecific in re- in relationship to specific categories of religion doesn't mean that the thing itself is not yet still specific. Mm-hmm. And so only in relationship can you get away with that. But then when you start to look at it and then you get, you get like Rothko's chapel and you get, right. you get these, um, you know, Barnett Newman, you get, you get a lot of people that were talking about theology and, and, you know, God and God, yes to God, no God. Like there's a lot of uh, borrowing from categories and trying to smuggle spiritualized language into the rhetoric and discussion regarding art, regarding modern art. And, and not like in a cynical way, like, I mean, like, and, you know, and I think in a, in a lot of ways, in a sincere way of like, is there more, is there something that unites us? Is there, is there a common language? Can we find it? Is it external to us or is it a purely internal impulse that pushes us towards uh, gestures that paint, paint can encapsulate and, and uh, bear evidence of and such that it's relatable to other people. And that's a, that's a huge discussion. Um, the, postmodern kind of uh, riff that either happened in the turn of the century, the 1900s, or it happened in the 1960s, depending on who you talk to. Um, just kind of said, you all too, you're, you're too serious about this and it's already failed. And we, we need to re-examine this. We need to become critical thinkers. And so we need to get critical over, over your spiritualizations. And a um, couple, couple decades of that, and, and we're in a really, we're in a highly spiritualized place right now. In, in many ways, you know, it's kind of, kind of coming back around. Um, anyhow, totally off, off, off topic in a way, but, um, well, I, I don't know if it, I think it's tangential in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but I think it relates because, uh, you know, as you're talking about like, um, you know, so we start off talking about memory. Now we're talking about like kind of the spiritualization within, you know, modern art and things like that. Um, I think there's uh like all this comes to a sense of like uh like seeking that I think is really fantastic in yep. art and design. Like I really enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea of like uh, tangible making as a way of exploring ideas, as yes. a way of exploring uh, possibility, like whichever way you kind of land with it. Um, and I think it's interesting because of all the pathways that you could have possibly gone. Um, you're coming out of this context that like when you're describing all the things happening in Southern California in your early life, it's extremely visceral. Like Correct. I can, I can see this, I can hear this. I can like, you know, smell the hot dogs, smell the, the, the salt taco water, bell. right. You yeah. know, like, yeah, the Taco Bell, um, all of this, you know, and, um, the fact that the pathway, all of these things kind of got you to a place with art. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that early, like formalized art education, probably like post high school, yep. what did that start to look like? And, um, uh, who were the voices that were really a part of that conversation that helped frame, Everything yeah. you just said. Yep. So coming out of high school, photorealism, looking at um, comic book stuff, doing Letterman's Jackets, athlete kid, just trying to survive. Got, you know, got a lot of intense environment, a lot of gang activity, that kind of thing. Go to, so got recruited to college, couldn't go, couldn't pass my uh, SATs as far as math goes. So had to go to, my parents split up, had to go to community college, went to Antelope Valley Community College and there 
I met a, a, a lot of interesting people that I feel like in many ways, uh, aesthetically and artistically speaking, were kind of a bridge between what I was doing in high school and what I'm doing now. And so they lived in a kind of in-between, um, really eccentric, illustrative world. There's a lot of illustration happening. There's a teacher named Frank Dixon. I had a teacher named Cynthia, Cynthia Manet and Pat Hines. And in the in 1995, 96, this place was like doing de, de lectures where they had the illustration department debate with the fine arts department as to whether or not Norman Rockwell was fine art. And so in, in I would go to classes and the illustration classes would say I was a fine artist and I'd go to fine artist class and they'd tell me I was an illustrator. And so I used to just sit in the middle of the room in these debates and, and try to understand, <laughs> like understand uh, <laughs> what the heck is going on. Um, but it was good, you know, like it was sincere and they'd bring artists in. And so like, that was a big thing for me. And, and, um, uh, I bounced around a little bit, failed out of school, failed out of athletics, got injured and, um, started working at a high school as a security guard in Palmdale and, uh, you know, still doing art, still known. So I had this reputation, but I was like working in a high school with my mom and other friends and, uh, had a so had like a knack for kind of counseling and that kind of thing and relating to people, I guess. And so, um, moved around and in this school district, worked at a school called Phoenix high school, which was for twice expelled teens. And there I met, uh, Scott Schaffel and Jerry Grashaw. Scott Schaffel was a principal. Jerry Grashaw was a counselor for, I mean, these are like, I was assigned to work with a kid who had beat a teacher with a baseball bat and was a, expelled twice and was up, like there was a huge court hearing as to whether he could be held accountable for what he did. Like there's kids. That, wow. Yeah. I mean like kids that are, have murder charges, this kind of thing. And so, yeah. but I loved it there, man. I mean, I was like kind of probably a lot of the people I used to hang out with. So with these kids, um, I, I had a chance. I started an art program. I got to teach classes and I got all this extra training on class management. Um, I was working with a lot of kids that had ADHD at the time and learning a lot and was effective. And, um, I think cause I was kind of one of those kids in a way I, I felt like I related or understood and could reach them and, and like word spread. And, um, my principal was like, you're a teacher and my, uh, uh, counselor Jerry was like, no, he's a counselor. And so, um, I was presented with art therapy as an option. And so they encouraged me to go back to college. Like you're wasting your time. You got to go back to college. So did that, got to, passed through a year of community college, went to CSU Sacramento because it was one of the three places at the time that actually had an art therapy program. And one of the me the main people, the foremost people on this was there. I got there the first week and that person passed away. Mm. So the program was put on hiatus. Yeah. And this is big because I think I see a lot of students struggle with this and parents too because they're they just don't know how to think about it yet. I kind of wanted art therapy because I wanted to, I felt like I had to jam everything into one thing. I really cared about people. You know, I, when I got there, I got a job as a group home counselor. So I was still doing counseling and, you know, care and this kind of thing and service. And I thought that I had to smash them together and yeah. I needed job security, you know? So that was like where it started to weigh on me. Like I need a job, you know, I got to make sure I can pay for my, my life. And, um, but what happened was once I couldn't do art therapy, I was double majoring in psychology and art. Then, uh, I was like, you know, I'm hiding behind one of these for fear of what the other won't bring me, meaning what art won't bring me. And I had a mentor in psychology that told me, listen, at, and this is at this time, I think it's changed, but at this time he was like, 
PhD and he's like, listen, nobody, uh, art therapy is not a respected category or degree yet in practice. He's like, if you want the approval of your peers, you're going to have to get a PhD. And at the time I just couldn't imagine that much time in psychology because I was starting to see a lot of disunity in psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd ask basic questions like, well, what anthropological basis, like what model do you work out of? And in his, his perspective was like, well, well, you don't, you just kind of apply in each situation what seems right. And I was like, that's uncomfortable to me. I can't do that. So I just declare I'm going to be an artist, man. I'm just, I went full on art major and, um, which was like the best thing I ever did, uh, honestly. And, uh, so then I got introduced to immediately, um, you know, I had this class with this, uh, art, fantastic artist named Linda Day and she ended up being like a huge mentor and, um, she's a painter and just really intense, super smart, super good, super caring, but super hard. I mean, first critique I had, I cried. I'd never had anybody talk to me like that before. I was always given a free pass on being pretty good. And I had the best painting in the room. And I'm not saying that because I, out of arrogance, it just was, but she did not care. I mean, she ripped me harder than anybody else in the class. And I cried. And then I went, whoa, this is the first person to ever be honest with me. Like I, I and I was like, I can finally, like if she's down to do that, if I can get over myself, I can learn from her because she's not going to sidestep telling me what I need to hear. Mm-hmm. And that started it, man. Like, and then, and then it was like, I had, uh, she linked me up with, I met Oliver Jackson, um, who actually has a show right now at the national gallery and definitely go see that if you're hearing this. Uh, and he's got a lecture on September 15th. He's African American artist. Uh, yeah, I tried to get a show. I wanted to carry him here and in, in a, in a show and, at the gallery, the national gallery, they're saying that he's a national treasure. I've been saying that for a while as a rarity. So, um, you should go see it. But anyhow, this guy is like off the charts, intellectual, verbose, intense. And, um, and he came to a critique that I had Linda, we used to do these things called open critiques where you sign up and the faculty's there and you put your work up and they just grill you. And it was a big deal. Linda brought this whole thing here, created a lot of buzz, a lot of energy at the school. It's a small school, CSU Sacramento. A lot of great teachers there, though. And uh, I was making these pieces on the back of corkboard, and they were like these collage-type pieces with painting. And uh, I put them up on the wall, and, and uh, Linda was – she's like, Oliver's going to rip this to shreds. Like, that's just what he does in, in really artful ways, but also, like, really harsh ways. So I'm scared to death and I haven't even seen Oliver. I don't know who he is. I just have heard about him. He's like a legend. He's on a semi-retirement. He came back for two more years, thankfully for me. And he, uh, and so the way I was thinking about these pieces was like, these are not whole pieces. They're just, they're like, they're like words that make up a sentence or they're like sentences that make up a paragraph. And so I said that and he just like looked at him and he was like, kind of replaying back to me what I said. And the other, what was interesting is the other teachers in the room, shut down. Like even they were intimidated by him. So I was like, Oh my gosh, people that I've never seen act this way or acting a certain way. This is really wild. It's pretty intense. Yeah. 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 And I'm not really an academic. Like I'm in an academic environment with that imposter thing. I'm like the kid that still is like, I'll fight you or, you know, like <laughs> let's go right escape. I don't know. Like I was a, a raw kid. I was a wild yeah, yeah. kid. So, uh, a wild young man. So I'm in there. I still got some like hood mentality in my mind because mm-hmm. I grew up a certain way. And so, um, I'm scared, but not scared. I, I should be scared, but I'm not in the way that you'd think. And so, um, he like goes, uh, you know what that work is doing? I was like, what do you mean? What is it doing? 
He's like, well, you know, like I had this piece that says my kingdoms crumble, crumble, my kingdom crumbles. And it was like this, like, <laughs> it was like a toilet scratched. I drew a toilet. I scratched a, I painted a toilet bowl with a piece of toilet paper on this cork board, but I scratched out the words crumbles and it was crumbling. And, and then he was like, he started talking about the effects of the, the thing in a way that I hadn't even, I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now, man. Like, this is crazy. And, uh, and he started pointing out little things in the paintings and he's like, you know, you might be a real painter. And then he goes, but you need training. Yeah. And that's all he said. And then everyone was like, no one, you know, so I went up afterwards cause it, Linda was like, Linda looked at me and was like, took a sigh of relief and she's like, that's really good. I told you that. And so Linda had been a big advocate and she was also intimidating, but wonderful. So man, that set me off. I was in like taking grad classes as an undergrad after that. Like I, I went all in, they gave me a studio. I was a woodshop tech. I just, I read books 24 seven and I was considered, I was called the uh, honorary grad student in undergrad at CSU Sacramento for my time there and won a bunch of awards, started making huge paintings and just consumed everything I could learn from Joe. I was like, Joe Moman studio assistant. I was um, Mark Emerson's art handler, helping him hang art at different places. And I learned from all these people on the job and off the job in an immersive way. And then I was like reading books with Tom Monteith, who ended up being huge, huge, huge for me, who studied with Oliver. I just had this network of really great artists. I didn't know how good it was until I came to Virginia. And then I went, and then after time at VCU, then I realized how special these people are and were some of them are gone now they didn't they, they passed on but really really intense time um yeah so it's interesting like hearing you talk about this like um you've got uh this kind of classroom and critique space and then you've got this more uh kind of uh, professional practice space where you're you've got both of these things going on in your life where you're working with artists and folks in galleries but you're also working within a classroom and critiques um and I think that's really interesting because I think sometimes we can compartmentalize yeah. like maybe it's one of the best things we're, we're capable of doing or right. we're, we're, we're most apt to do compartmentalization, yeah. but not always for a positive. Um, and so I know with my students, I'm, I'm always encouraging them like, Hey, it's great. Like you're learning things within this, this classroom space and critique space. Right. Um, but you've got to put legs on it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, so looking back, having the, the benefit of hindsight, what is, can you kind of talk more about the benefit of those two things happening at the same time for you in school? Oh yeah, man, that's huge. So, because one, one thing kind of going back to the mystery around artists, like I, I had like the, uh, I remember just stretching some canvases for Joan moment and cleaning up, just cleaning up her studio. And, and also like, she had this incredible studio in her backyard and, uh, you know, that they built her and her husband built themselves and she's well-respected, successful. And so I'm in a place where I'm learning things. And, you know, like sometimes when they, when you're young and you're learning stuff, you get a little cocky about it. So oh, you're yeah. just a little, you're a little too up on the, the edges are too sharp on what you've learned it and you're, you're wielding it too unruly than in a way that's not fair or charitable. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was wrestling with that, you know, ego and arrogance thing. And, and, um, you know, I was living between a couple points. I was working at an art store, going to school full time, um, studio assistant. Like I had been selected to be Judy Fast studio assistant for a time, also. And so, um, 
which didn't work out the way I would have liked, but um, nonetheless. Um, and so with Joan, I, there was a time where, and this is not to sound unflattering towards her, but it actually was helpful. She kind of just came into her studio, man. She had bedhead. She, she just didn't look together. And then, and then like, she did, she didn't understand why one of her paintings, this is like a successful painter. She had like done a solo show at the Whitney. So she didn't understand why one of the paintings didn't work. And I remember being like, well, it doesn't work because you're, you're the, the way you're using the black is flattening the other forms. And I said that, and she's like, um, I never learned that. And she's been teaching at the school I go to for, you know, like 30 years. And, and I was like, so perplexed. I was like, how do you not know that? Like that's stuff that like Tom and Oliver teach, you know? And what crystallized there is there is a lot of disunity in the art world. And she shared like a lot of painters coming out of the postmodern or the modern era, like more in the first generation feminist, they abandoned a lot of the formalization stuff under. And I understand why it was dogmatized. It was oppressive and so, and then you had someone like Oliver who was of that generation and did not abandon that. He just kept rolling with it. And so depending on who you learn from, you would either learn this or not. And so she, she conceded, like, I know how to do what I do, but I've never learned how to paint. And it's, I'm too known and it's too late for me to go back and learn things that you're learning. And I remember being staggered by that, but I remember also being thankful. Like one is I appreciated that she was a real person and I could see that because you can't see, the, you can't see that in the class. Right. Um, and simultaneously, then I'm getting this truck with Mark Emerson and he's a successful painter and he's, he's like a successful painter. Right. But he's like installing art for galleries in like hospitals and law and like, and so we just talk, you know, so I'm, I'm getting these experiences that are like, these are just humanizing experiences with, and I'm seeing a window into regular people. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm getting invited to dinners at Linda Day's house with like different faculty and like as a college student and like listening to them converse. And you're seeing these like intersecting spaces that make the classroom make more sense. So the, the, the classroom outside the classroom started to take the pressure off of what I thought I needed to get out of the classroom, which freed me to what the classroom provided. So it was in the holistic nature. So a lot of what, what I aspire to and what we talk about, what we aspire to in Shaka Art Space is born out of my experiences, refined thinking, but it's born out of what I got when I, where I got it, you know? Um, and, uh, and the other thing is, is like, so like, even with someone like Oliver Jackson, like I remember we, you know, he's the kind of person you want to keep talking to. And, and I remember we, as a, we had him, we're hanging out in the grad studios together after like a big crit and everyone's this is a different time. You know, we're having a glass of wine and, uh, he kind of let his hair down a little bit and I saw his humanity and then I said, Holy cow, you know, uh, even the smartest minds, you know, this is a guy that like, you know, I just remember the first time we did a crit class with him or a, a theory class with him. He had a couple books like memorized. And so we had two books out and he, he didn't have them out and he would tell you what pages to turn to and like what line and he had it memorized and I'd never seen anything like that. And he was making sense of things that I've never seen other people make sense of. Now, I don't agree with all his conclusions, even especially probably now. I feel like I, I start somewhere different, land somewhere different. But I, there's a lot of redeemable stuff in there that, I, that I, I respect. And I think he's worth considering listening to, that kind of thing. But also, he was like not perfectly content or happy. You know, I remember he let his guard down and shared some things. And was like, whoa, 
Um, so I was getting these amazing adjustments to what my expectations would be. And then I was getting intangibles, but it wasn't coming through the classroom. Yeah. Know? So that's, I mean, that's, that's really fantastic. Um, cause talking about this almost is, it seems like a, a cyclical thing. And it, it reminds me of what you always say of like artists need to know other artists and be exactly. known by artists, right? It, there's a cyclical nature in some ways. Um, and we've referred to this in other episodes. We talked about the generative nature of yes. art and when it's kind of at its best, it is producing beyond mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really fascinating um, to talk about that you're, we often think, I think that we, we make everything so linear because right. it, it, maybe it feels more comfortable or easier mm -hmm. to, to grasp. Um, it's kind of maybe even a, a pre-coping mechanism of mm -hmm. sorts for what we do. Um, but we make it linear in the sense that, uh, well, I, I, I go to my classes and it will teach me how to do well in the world. Yes instead of understanding that, well, your classes will help you do better in the world, but the context of the world and the environment that you're in will actually help you do your classes better too. Yes. And so when we, when we divorce those two things from each other, we do a huge disservice to the ability that we have to actually make learning art a better process as right. well. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what that looks like for individuals, whether it's internships or finding, you know, whatever type of like collaborative show or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. type of gallery it is yep. to be a part of, right. As early on as possible, sure. I think is fantastic. Um, it also means, I mean, that's the imperative is to kind of grab, seize hold of those, those possibilities sooner and implement, um, ways of envisioning what things can be sooner for people at a younger age. So that their their starting point is better and more clear and more um, uh, uh, indicative of where they they might be headed, like more accordance between uh, what we say we want to do and what 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 it's for, and and having some of those myths dispelled, um, you know the contingent the the fact that we're so contingent upon. Like I had my my good friend Richard, his name is Richard Myers. He he um, we went to school together. He's a great artist. He probably maybe he was more talented than me, but. Um, we had different teachers, completely different teachers. And so by the end, he was like, I just don't feel like I got this. I don't even feel like we went to the same school. I don't know how you know what you know. Mm -hmm. So contingent upon who I studied with. And I mean, what I learned is why I think I've managed to get hired at VCU. So not only, I mean, it's kind of almost frightening. Had I not had the teachers I had, I would not be talking to you right now because I wouldn't know what, I, I just wouldn't know where to go. I mean, I learned things about you know, painting that, um, you know, going back to the seeker thing. So I, you know, I was, a, I was a seeker and I wanted to know if there was anything more. And that's a discussion someday we'll have. Um, that is a, you know, I got to say this or I'd be lying. Like that's a huge part of all of this. And, uh, is there anything more than just, just me in this painting? And that's a big discussion. And I definitely went to a school that had a shamanistic, approach they, they they mythologize like like you'd be led to so so you know you talk about the inscape of the painting and get into the effects and the mechanics like the way in which the painting acts upon itself you know the idea of like the painting is a thing so this would be the idea the painting is a thing unto itself that has a a, a set of properties that are operative in pushing and pulling on each other kind of a hans hoffman Bay Area figurative amalgamation of effects that render affects on the audience. And then the, there's the, the what is it unto itself kind of discussion. And so 
I employ some of that stuff because because it helps us dislodge our personal preferences and get clearer eyes to to have like an inductive engagement with the work as it is. And and charitably, when you ask the question, what is a work doing, assumes it is a something and it actually is dynamic, not inert. Mm -hmm. So it assumes the positive from the get go. And that's there's usefulness in that because it acquaints you to the specifics of the work because it buys you time. If you come to it just to merely consume it like a, you know, like a, like a, you know, uh, a candy, mm -hmm. you just go and put your mouth on it, suck on it and it's gone. Well, uh, you can do that. You can have your opinions, uh, but you may miss what it is. Right. And, and so, um, some will say that like, you know, there's even a talk right now where Oliver's talking about his new show that you should go see. I can't wait to go see it. But he talks about, he's like, there is no story to this art. It, it doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's not, it's not a narrative. And um, they're, they're their own states of affairs that present their own logic, their own coherence. And you either enter in or you don't. And his thing, his assumption is that, that it's open to interpretation and open to people's willingness. Um, I think there's, I think that's true, but I also think there's other ways to talk about it as well. But I would say that uh, that was useful. That was useful learning for me because I, my eyes became sensitive and I started to care about nuance and I could see how things pushed and pulled on each other and that created rates of looking and speed and things would slow down. And then you start to like really, really pour over um, the qualitative states of affairs between something that was more plastic and something that was more matte, the way light hits something shiny and it, it um, activates the surface quickly because it has to do with the way we look in our retina and the way uh, paradoxically, the way something can be truly forward, but actually because of atmospheric effects or the, the matte quality, that thing can visually seem like it's the furthest thing sunk to the back of the, the canvas. And so the idea that forms can gather and then dissipate at the same time, you know, uh, that painting can create tensions that are, that suspend a moment through gathered matter, bearing out the effects of time in such a way that you feel as though uh, everything is there, but everything can fall apart in one moment. Like for a while, that was a really captivating milieu to sort of immerse yourself in because it, it felt like philosophy in the visual terms. It felt like a, a, a musing on the nature of reality as we understand it. That's how I used to think about it. And, I, and so I still see that stuff, but I, I have a different um, epistemic understanding of the world around me that informs what's going on there in general and more and, and, and therefore I'm not I don't come to the same conclusions although uh it, so what happened was I, I got tired of being brought to questions without ever having an answer okay um so I, I couldn't I couldn't live forever in a place of titillation towards the ends of something more than just the mere painting then I had to go to different, I had to go to philosophy and theology and other categories to start to ask questions because they were more primed to deal with those questions in the way that I was asking them. Not that the paintings weren't doing a serious work. Um, and so then my relationship with painting started to change. Um, and uh, I think, I, I think for me, I have a, a more down to earth perspective on painting, but I love painting. You know, like I'm a, you know, my heroes, Rich and Diebenkord, Martin Kippenberger, Albert Olin, um, Philip Gustin, um, Jessica Stockholder, and just uh, Albert Beardstad, um, John Constable. Um, you know, I, I, one of those weird people that really loved the teachers I had, uh, Tom Monteith, Dave Wetzel in the day, Mark Emerson, uh, uh, just were just my teachers in Sacramento, but they really left a huge uh, imprint on me. 
And, you know, you're kind of made fun of for that at the time, but as time goes on, I'm like, they're, they're just, they're just as good as anybody else. They just didn't become famous in the same way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so painting just had an intensity in terms of the way it dealt with his, the history of ideas. You know, it's a, it's a record of the way we were thinking at any given time. So I started to have a, a lens for like, and an appetite for like the history of painting and, and as a way of understanding people um, and ourselves. Yeah. yeah it, it's got me kind of thinking um, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it sounds like there's, um, there's a tension that uh, is at play between the idea of cultural weight and cultural impact mm-hmm. um, kind of in the sense of like uh, what, what would be the, uh, the, the qualitative difference between um, handing out a manifesto and right. having a town hall meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so one object can just exist and can be what it in, is in some sense of totality. Right. But the other one allows for an entry point into something else yep. that becomes much more, um, not necessarily conversational, but maybe, you know, generative or right. uh, something of that nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting. Um, so with these ideas, these kind of, uh, you're talking about how maybe they were a little different than some of the folks that you were learning under, um, and, uh, maybe working with, but why did you kind of land on, uh, contemporary painting as kind of your home base? Like, mm-hmm. did you feel like these ideas were, were welcome there? Was it a stylistic preference? Was it, yeah. you know, yeah, was it yeah. a mixture of everything? Was it more of this lattice you're talking about? Yeah, it's definitely, I definitely think it's the lattice. So what modern painting helped me see is, so when I was a comic book kid, I liked, the frame, the composition of the frame almost as much as the image, if not more. Oh, definitely. But I had no category to, I couldn't tell anybody that I just liked it. So, you know, you know, I was like a Todd McFarlane kid, you know, I liked how gestural his figures were. Right. And in how a square with a smaller panel could be floating on top of a whole page of just image, you know, it wasn't just grid. And so there's these intuitive imprints on the back of my mind that are, have been, had been shaping an aesthetic sensibility, you know, like I loved billboards at the time, like the dilapidated billboards, like when I was, so I'd look at billboards and I'd be like, that's aesthetically interesting to me, this history that's been torn away and the remnant of an image. And I think some of that aesthetic, this is going to be embarrassing, but some of that aesthetic affinity correlated to uh, George Lucas aging a world and making a sci-fi thriller, you know, or action adventure or star Wars when I was like a kid, like, and you know, when I was like a kid and you see that in the idea of like, you know, uh, in a galaxy, uh, far away, a long, long time ago, however, however it said, like that the world he made matched the statement and it had age and time to it. So, I, I mean, you start thinking about stuff like that. Like, like seriously, like I used, I was the kid that used to try to reconcile, like how, how is it that Santa Claus can get to everybody's house? How, how can you be in multiple places at one time? What is time? Like those kinds of questions. And so then you get to painting and you start looking at how painters have tried to deal with these issues. And so you get to modern art and you've got, um, gestural abstraction. You've, you've got it in on the heels of impressionism. So you look at things like, uh, reconcilables. So even impressionism dealing with the effects of time as it passes along the surface of an object. It's not so much about the crystallization of the image, but about capturing a moment and rendering in such a way that it impresses a moment 
on the viewer that feels animated or alive externally so and then you get to you take that and that's like compelling to me and you take some of your romantic landscape enlightenment stuff transcendentalism and um uh beardstad and uh cole and i don't know hudson river stuff and uh and then you look at you know then i look at things like um altar paintings um my brain is is completely blanking on names right now but um people that i normally can say without blinking an eye it's just funny i'm getting older um but just you know so so okay so altarpieces architecture the altarpieces have this correspondence to the architecture of the frame but they also have an internal correspondence to a text in that they're religiously bound in terms of the orchestration of the imagery so story and narrative and poetry and tradition are informing and so you have this intersecting space between architecture painting corporate interactivity on the part of parishioners or church folk or whatever and then you have this um narrative organizing image structure and so a kind of cohesive picture and and how much that informs um modern art both what it chooses to do and not do what it reacts against and what it moves towards but you can't get away from it you know and so so the modern artists couldn't get away from it they couldn't get away from um religion and uh they, a lot of them tried but they could and a lot of them were religious folk in, in one way or another and so um so you look at a rothko and and it just makes sense that he made there's a chap a rothko chapel you know yeah. and so so they were dealing with the stuff that seemed to matter the most to me and within the action itself you had your gesture abstractionists or your action painters so you had your impressionism talking about externals and you had your action painters talking about this is all internal. And then you have your like post-minimalist stuff, you know, and, and, and it's like, no, there is no reference. Painting's dead. There's no reference to anything. It is what it is. It's, it's, it's present. It's irreducible complexity. It's just sitting in the room. And for me, all these things felt harmonizable. They didn't feel like they were at odds with each other. The history of how they came about as ideas and discussions is what it is. It's how it happens. We de- we debate over time, but we live in a privileged point of view where postmodernism is, postmodernism has rendered art history a smorgasbord, and we can just come to it and eat. And so, um, and the debates are not the same anymore. And so, um, I saw a need to harmonize impressionism and, and abstract gesture abstraction. So, like. I've, you know, I've chosen to do the gallery stuff, so I don't make as much painting as I, as I, I could or, or would like to sometimes I've made a sacrifice here, but you know, my mainline painting as it stands is really dealing in those areas. So like, if you take, if you take the, uh, your religious altarpiece, it, it, it's in mind of the architecture. And so it's mindful and in the way the flatter framework signals or corresponds with the architecture. So in my paintings, you have this frame, integrated frame. Um, and then you have this kind of impressionistic, expressionistic synthesis in the gestural space in between the frame of the center of the painting. So it's in black and white. And some of that's just like uh, came at a time when I, I lacked resources. And also thinking about heroes like Philip Gustin and Albert Ullin, who play, had black and white painting periods, um, or Rick Gerhard Richter, or what have you, um, Susan Rothko, or, you know. Um, but. With minimalism, I like I, I felt there was a relevance 
that dealt with the ontology of the thing itself present to you and not merely a window to escape away from. So I love the imperative of, of uh, uh, geometric abstraction and post-minimalism in, in terms of dealing with that which is irreducibly complex, undeniable and in your face, and you are having a first order experience with it. It's not a window into something you, you have to like think about that you wish you could have been, been there, like a photograph kind of. And so for me, the paintings that I make and the way I think about it is so that that milieu has allowed me to, to sort of think like a DJ, maybe, and, and see these not as irreconcilable differences, but optimal um, sort of epistemic philosophical ideologies that manifest visually and can be synthesized together. And, and, and maybe I'm just a puzzle solver, you know, and maybe no one needs to know that. Um, I've had people track with what I'm putting down, I guess, but most time, like people look at it and there's an aesthetic value possibly for them. And, and I'm good with that too, you know, but, um, behind the scenes, that's the stuff that just got my, has gotten my, you know, that's been like what interests me, I guess, um, is, uh, and, and I, I hesitate to talk about this kind of stuff because I don't like the idea that, the, the idea that you should get it, I don't believe in that. I don't believe you should get it. I don't think art just, you just get it. I, I, I think that cheapens art. It exalts it to cut its legs off. It puts it too high so you can just chop it down and say, well, because I didn't get it, it's not, val- it, it's not valid. Yeah. And I think that's problematic. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't say the same. We wouldn't say that about literature, right? No. We would say we can approach this this short story. Exactly. And we can read it in multiple ways. We yeah. can understand it different. Because uh, when you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, you're talking about like your 600 like rap tapes in your yes. garage. And I'm thinking like, in some ways, what I hear you saying is almost in a sense, you become like a visual MC where you're mm-hmm. sampling and looping. Yep. But I can come to each of those things and I can see them as their parts. I can see it as its whole. Yep. I can experience it in different ways so that it's never a piece that has to be tied down or staked to a place. Mm-hmm. But it is something where I do have to be approached by this object and have an experience with. Yep. Yeah. 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 And yeah, exactly. And, uh, um, You, you don't have to, well, you know, like you don't look, you don't go to a scientist and say, let me look in your microscope yeah and then go, I don't get it. <laughs> Therefore <laughs> right. nothing's happening. You never yeah. do that. And, and, and here's the thing, you know, some people that wanted me to, cause I could draw realistically or whatever I could render. I studied Baroque painting. I did figure painting. I mean, I, I got really good training. I mean, if, my, if you see my students work, they, they learn how to render really well. And, uh, I teach them all the stuff that I've learned as best I can. And, and my students end up doing really well. And so when people see what my students do, they think I'm this like classical realist guy. And then they see my paintings and they're like, what the heck? This doesn't make any sense. And it's like, well, yeah, cause I'm not here to teach you how to be an artist like me. I'm just here to teach you how to see how to render at a foundation level. So if it were a different class, we'd be learning different things, but this is what I'm, I'm required to teach you is what I want to teach you. This is where what's good for the school I'm in at VCU and our foundations and like, you know, and there's a lot of work I put into that. But, um, and so, uh, it's not a problem for me because I see the larger continuity between these categories and, uh, I don't see them as so, so fractured, but, um, we don't do that with like anything else you don't do that with. So the question is, why do we, why do we do this with art? Those expectations were set by someone 
and it was not very long ago. See, so when it was religious painting, uh, why was there religious painting? Well, because there's religious people and they couldn't read, but they could look at images. Yeah. Or, or in terms of liturgy, they weren't allowed to. So they, they had a preacher and then the images were there to reinforce what the, what the, the priest was preaching. Right. Okay. So how much art, whether we like it or not, is informed by religion and then, or, you know, your, um, kind of Eastern, Eastern reference points, like your, uh, uh, landscape like Japanese landscape painting or scrolls. Like I had, I studied with a Chinese instructor named Brenda Louie in, in the art of sumi and, and um, ink and wash and like the way that tradition is immersed and passed down. Didn't just speak for itself. It was in reference to people in a context that helped them understand always what they were doing. It's interesting how rich traditions in the East and the West are able to uphold aesthetic expressions because there's a lot of contingent factors that are upheld as well. And so that, and so like those are valid expressions that come over iteration and time and you get to modern art and we don't have, you know, you get to America, you don't, you're not painting for the, um, you're not painting for the King and the queen or some rich people necessarily, you know, you're not paying for the church anymore. So then you're like, what do we do? And the Jackson Pollock starts hanging out with, you know, he's hanging out with a, uh, you know, philosophers and theorists and Clement Greenberg and, He's generating his ideas and saying, well, shoot, if I, I'm, I'm, I've got these ideas and I need this person to visualize those. And so we, we need each other. And so you start getting these, these ideas that get churned out and they're different because they're not operating in the same framework. They're not the same. How, how long has religion been around? A long time, right? Modern art's been around since maybe Monet's. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe so, but you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, right? Mm-hmm. That's not a long time. Yeah. But we give that period too much power. And that's where art, the art for art's sake, the art should speak for itself. That's where it comes from. We give it too much canonized power. So we do need to rethink our education a little bit. And I'm a, I'm a modern art dork. I like it. And yeah. we give it too much power. And so you got people that walk around going, the art should speak for itself. I don't care how good you are. I, w- I would love to have a discussion about that. Because I don't know of anything else that's required to do that all the time. And so it sets you up for failure and it sets you up for division and it sets you up for isolation and it sets you up for condescension and it sets you up to find only certain kinds of people supporting art. And uh, canon art impact a lot of people? Yes. But it's always on a wall. Mm-hmm. It's always in a gallery. It's always contingent. You know, painting is always on stretchers. It's always contingent upon the paint that you brought to bear before it ever was made. It doesn't just speak for itself. Flowers don't speak for themselves. They're in soil. They're pollinated by bees. The world doesn't work that way. But that doesn't make it not impressive or powerful. It actually understood the other way becomes more impressive. They can still be little ends in and of themselves. I can look at a flower and I should look at a flower and go, what the heck, what kind of world do I live in where something so beautiful can exist so contingently and I can step on it so quickly? What kind of world do I live in? I should ask bigger questions as a result of that little end. On the other hand, I can just look into its interior reality and marvel over the complexity. And I can do both of those. 
And I think, I think paintings, I think painting is the same way. Um, so, I mean, I, I feel like I offend painters sometimes on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm trying to give painting more space to be a painting. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the, you know, there, there's just so much, uh, again, looking at something like cultural weight and cultural impact, like that conversation between those two, there, there's so much weight that's placed on something like painting, um, that you're always going to have some point where, where that weight things start to buckle. Correct. Right? And, uh, and the, and the issue is like, if you think about, uh, like, Olympic weightlifters, mm-hmm. right? When they buckle, that's a, that's a point of, um, like, uh, it's a, it's a problematic point. Yeah. I got all these bad videos where people buckle and yeah. <laughs> like where the, the, they're crushed by their weights, you know, like the people that are alone in their studio or in their weight room trying to lift weights. Oh, yeah. And guys. like, you, you know, that's not like, that's not the ideal, no. right? Like the buckling is not the thing that you're trying to achieve in that moment. Yeah. Um, maybe a belt buckle. Yeah. Like that's, that's the only buckle we're allowed to have. Exactly. And so, um, I don't know. I think that, you know, you're talking about this idea of, uh, you know, art speaking for itself and I, and I'm trying to put together any sort of context where something like that would make sense. Kind of like, you know, like how we, you've already just said several times, like we, we exist in this space where things are kind of impressed upon us that are not impressed in any other area, mm-hmm. no other career, no other expression. Yes. Like only within art do we say these types of things. Um, and I just think about, um, like if, if I were to go to another country, Nobody would say, Hey, you, you know, you'll just, you'll get there and it'll be, it'll be cool. You'll get yeah. it or you won't. And you won't get it because you weren't supposed to. Yeah. 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 Nobody would say that. I would yeah. either have a translator or a teacher. Correct. And those are the two things, these bridges between the worlds where it's like, we can still have all of the cultural weight and introduce a cultural impact. Mm-hmm. If we can start to understand the translation or teaching aspect, that's a part of it. And this, I think goes back to the knowing and being known, uh, concept as well. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I think you and I do what we do at VCU. Correct. Because, uh, I don't, I don't want to be personally a part of a world of art or design where the door is always shut and not just to people coming into it as practitioners, but people coming into it as appreciators, as viewers, as, uh, buyers even. Right. right? I don't want somebody just to say, well, there were a lot of people around that piece at the gallery, so I guess it was good. So I bought it and put it on my wall, but I don't know if I get it or like it. Like I don't, I don't want that conversation to that's happen. That's how I voted. I, that's how I approached all my dating relationships until I met my wife. <laughs> I'm dating you. I don't know if I like you. Other people like you. No, I'm just kidding. That's terrible. No, <laughs> that's a terrible. Scratch that. <laughs> I mean, but you know, it's it's one of those things where we want. I think we want a, a better sense of feel and this, you know, maybe this, some folks might feel like this waters it down, but I think we want a better feel of community within art. And I think it's also understanding that community is probably bigger than just the, the makers. No. Yeah. So, so if you go to, so, I mean, this is the, these are the Mickey's that we, we swallow when you go. So any art you see in a museum in a good way, this is all good is upheld by that particular institution Right. And what other financial backers or however, whatever structures the obtaining and the collecting and the displaying of a given art. Now, if an art continues to be displayed over hundreds of years, it has, it cannot do it for itself. It has to be upheld by someone else. Right. Um, that has to be understood. The city is involved with, you know, zoning. Okay. Who decides that? people that are like probably really far from 
conscientiously thinking about art possibly, you know, um, just go any route with that, like any route. And you're, you're never not dealing with people outside of your most immediate circle. There's just no, the electrician that comes in and installs the lights in the gallery. Okay. If those lights aren't there, your painting doesn't get seen. Um, it sounds silly to think about this. It sounds too obvious, but it, it, in the reverse, these become the opportunities by the way. And, and, and you don't lose anything with regards to your painting and your work by having a wider view like this, you actually gain more community because you start to see the value people play. Even those that, that uh, you don't think are at the table with you all of a sudden they're there and now you're eating with them. And that's what you want. Um, at the, like I say it all the time and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face at the end of the day, every human interaction, culturally speaking has relationships somewhere involved in there. So why are we doing this? Well, uh, someone's listening possibly we've, we've heard that people are listening. So now we know at least someone's listening. Right. Yeah. And that's actually a person. I don't suspect that the fish are listening. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't gotten got contacted by any elephants or dogs or cats, but people, human relationships. Um, sometimes in our education, we prop up the individual artist, the heroic artist. And I'm going to save some of this. We're going to have a talk with Wes Taylor and I want to get into this with Wes, but um, too much. And it creates a narrow mold that does not ready someone for what really is the case. And what happens is, a lot of artists quit making art and what they become is a powerful voice for why it doesn't matter because oh. they're the ones that did it. Yeah. And they can tell you from an institutional authority why it's not valid. You've no idea how many times I've heard this, the statistics on people that quit making art after their MFA. Now, why yeah. is it happening? Because they're not being given a context. Not all the time. I don't want to be too, Absolutized. There's amazing right. schools, amazing institutions. I even think our institution is working to try to change some of these parameters. So, but I'm just trying to crystallize a point of view and say, uh, we didn't get here overnight and it happened for a reason. And you, you can't act like everything's working. If 80%, if 70% of BFA students quit after four years of their BFA and that yeah. next 30% goes on to get an MFA and then 90% of those quit, leaving 10% who work as artists and out of that 10%, 4% become art professors. Yeah. We have to, we have to look at that and go, there's a problem. What are we not getting? And Definitely. it's in our, it's in our, it's in our, uh, our framework is how we think about the world. It's how we think about our, our self understanding. Um, it's in our, uh, you know, it's in that romantic notion of, I mean, which we're dealing with, you know, like you got to try to fundraise and now we're trying to fundraise right now and you got to, deal you know you got to relate you got to build relationships with people that have money that you don't have and you want to do that in a real way an authentic way and we've never done that so it's a unique challenge but you have that history of relationship between the wealthy and their aristocratic kind of affluent society high society and and the painter and the way the two are dissatisfied in their own states but see that each of them possesses something the other wants and so they create unlikely uh, seemingly societally unlikely relationships over time that creates a new category that persists as a, as a, this is, this is the way we think about art, really wealthy people and really individualistic painters and they hang out together and they must be having a great time by themselves in high culture. And those are archetypes that have been passed down that leave everybody else going, well, screw that. I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah. There's no relevance on, yeah. on anything that, 
you know, but I was in an art fair, you know, we, we had, we were in Shaco art space was in current art fair in 2017. And there was a beautiful family, husband and wife, and maybe their newborn, I think, um, looking at a $2,500 painting from, uh, artist, a friend of mine that's shown Shaco art space, John Adams. And they, they stared at that painting for an hour and then they came back to it and they came back to it. They had never bought a piece of art before. And we just had a conversation kind of like how we're talking now and uh, talking about the value of it. And they were compelled by it, but they had, they didn't know why they had no, they didn't even know, like they've never, never thought about buying a, a work of art. They weren't wealthy. A $2,000 painting plus is mm-hmm. a huge deal for this young couple. Yeah. But they couldn't let it go. They kept coming back and they, they finally, we had a great talk and they finally, they decided they wanted to make the choice. They bought the art. And I said like, that's kind of more that's the thing that you think you want to have happen in art school when you talk about audience you, you, not the buying necessarily but just the idea that that was so compelling they couldn't let it go and they're like yeah i can't let it go so i'm not i'm gonna live with this and and i see value in what you did so i want to pay you something that is worth the work and so that you can continue to do this so other people have a chance to have this encounter. That's a beautiful picture. And I'm not anti-wealthy, of course. Like, I'm not anti, you know, I'm just saying, like, um, wherever you're at, we don't have to work out of the paradigm that's been handed down to us. Whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, whether you're, you know, a great painter working alone in your city or not, like, um, you don't have to isolate yourself. In fact, I think it's probably hurting Um the best of what we can have is entering what's really possible. So yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe you know, too harsh. I might be taking some people. I don't know. I might be upsetting some folks, but well, I think you're definitely pushing up against something that, that, it, that shows like an uncomfortable space yeah. within our design. Um, and I know that like from the design side of things, like as you're saying this, I'm like, well, yeah, this makes sense because so much of the history of design has been commercialized, right? Like to its detriment. I think so there's a, um, there's a robustness within design that can be, uh, kept at arm's length Mm -hmm. and just said, well, you're just making that for somebody else with them in mind. You're Mm -hmm. not making it as an object that can stand by itself. Correct. And while there's a fairness to that statement in some ways, it does completely marginalize any activity within design that comes out of understanding this artistic tradition, Mm -hmm. right? Because design didn't pop up as some, absolutely other no right i mean like it's very much i mean we've been kind of struggling with this for i don't know maybe our whole relationship even like the idea of like what is the relationship between art and design yeah and i think some of it is because of these same questions Mm -hmm. you know it goes back to the conversation of high versus low Mm -hmm. um you know um vocational versus technical Mm -hmm. uh commercial versus uh cultural object right so it's all of these these disparities um and the place I think where, where I'm, I'm settling is that there is a complementary nature within mm-hmm. art and design. And I think that that's a fantastic thing because what it means is that um, as a designer, I can look to the traditions of fine art to understand things like you've been talking about with cultural importance and the way it uh, has a conversation with the past and what it means as an object in and of itself and how people can enter into it. But also that the art world can look to the the history of design as short as it is relatively to, to fine art um, and say, you know, it's actually not terrible if some of this stuff actually greatly 
becomes a part of the everyday life of people. And we talked about this when we had Chino on, Mm -hmm. um, we've got paintings in our house and those paintings are from specific people that are friends of ours, um, with works that we love and they become like hugely important within the space. But they also are things that I feel like, like, um, Chino has a painting by our table. And if I took that down, I would feel completely different about my home. Mm-hmm. And some of it is because there is this idea of the artist being there in the house with us. Mm-hmm. So even when Chino's not at the house hanging out, he's there, his yeah. work is there yeah, and that's yeah. fantastic. Um, and so understanding kind of the whole gamut of the possibility that art can, can exist in, I think right. is, is much more, uh, robust. And again, goes back to this, this thing that's kind of turning my head of like, it can have a cultural weight, but I'd love for it to have a cultural impact, mm-hmm. not just the weight, but also the impact of that weight and how it, uh, changes spaces, transforms things, creates relationships, yeah. allows for conversations, right. whatever it may be. And, and that's the thing is that a lot of this stuff is, uh, institute. So, um, when I think, think institutions can die and when they start dying they start to dogmatize whatever they uphold and i i or maybe it's so they they start to uh the growth of whatever it is they're doing stops it crystallizes and it's upheld in a way that has more to do with what it's been than what it's going to be. And so these things become standard expectation, but the world doesn't move like that. The world's always kind of, you know, it's, it's dynamic. People are actively interacting. There's new desires, new needs, or or there's yeah. new iterations on old desires, that kind of thing. And so there's a dynamism to it. It's like, you know, a body, when it's alive, the blood's pumping, the heart's pumping. The bones are doing their work. The bones make the best sense. They're the, the compositional makeup of the body. And then you have, like, you have the flesh and the fat. And there's all these uh, um, converging variables that are mutually together and mutually contingent, mutually expressive, uh, and they comprise the whole, as we understand it, as a life. So institutions, when they're they're dying, you start to see things atrophy. You begin to see infighting. You begin to see um, competing, and um, and so then the, the the teaching starts to bear that. It's like a death, and so you start to teach death. So people come out of institutions that are dying with death expressions. And I just mean there's there's a it's a bad taste, and so um, art and design in the dynamic life flesh thing should look a lot different. It's complementary towards the ends of mutual flourishing, and there's too much to do to bicker about the differences. Yeah, totally. And so there's talking about it in a um, categorical way, like a textbook kind of way. And in a dead institution, it can create a lot of polarized fighting. In a live institution, it, it, it generates um, theory that gets boiled down into practice that actually then presses out into the world that is and has the impact that you're talking about. And 
the difficulty with institutions, I think, and I only know, you know, probably speaking way out of my lane here, just been thinking about this a lot, is uh, is what are those institutions contingent upon in terms of money, right? Who owns the money? Yeah. Who determines those things? So there's all these factors you can't get away from. And so coming back to like what establishes the dialogue for us, the understanding for us, uh, you know, how many people are at a dead institution and don't know it? Mm. And so, so they carry with it all the, the dead skin and they bring that out into a live world and they're like, doesn't nothing's working. Well, that's because what, the way you understand it is not going to free you to anything. It, you're not going to do anything with it because, because you're, you're, you're combative on the, you're combative at places where you don't need to be. You yeah. see problems where there aren't problems. Like imagine trying to imagine being, you know, all things considered, imagine we already breathe well, Minus like my allergies or asthma, but just assuming, you know, we're just naturally, we breathe, uh-huh. we're made to do it. And somebody has been so isolated artificially from that fact that they think they have to go out and invent a way to breathe, to do what we already do naturally. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. No. And so, and so, um, you either build a world around your idea that agrees with you and becomes more artificial and less less relevant to the world we find ourselves in. And then you get more people to turn the blinders on and we go, this is how we breathe. You know, I think that happens. Like, I, I don't even know if that makes, does that make sense? No, it you makes sense. Like yeah, you, yeah. You, so, you, you know, you get a lot of um, institutional infighting and then you got these ideas of like, you know, people will be like, well, sculpture is better than craft and, you know. And oh, those oh, those printmakers, you know, and and you know, if you're an illustrator, oh, those painters, and if you're a painter, oh, those illustrators, you know, and if you're a designer, you're like, we do the work, we do the poster work, and then you know, and if yeah. you're, and then, but everybody's riffing on each other and referencing each other. That's the other lie that we don't like. It's like hilarious, and uh, and you're like, what's all this infighting for? Well, that's that's what happens when institutions start dying. They're competing for uh, the last bit of bread that's there to be to be eaten or had. And, uh, and so, uh, so the question is what makes an institution alive? I'm trying to figure that out, but I think it has a great question. Yeah. I'm trying to, so, um, the bigger, the bigger something is, the harder it is, it, it, it's slower to move and it takes longer to feel the movement scales change. And, um, and when something is not fed, it, it, it just starts to stall out. You know, if we don't eat, we start to die. So what feeds an institution? You know, and I, you know, maybe I'm using this in a big, I'm thinking about MFAs because MFAs produce the artists. Mm-hmm. The question is too, is like, um, do we need it? Do we, do we need parity with MFAs? Is there other ways of obtaining knowledge in a vital and enlivened sense that, that helps to free up MFAs to not be the only way in which people feel they've been approved to be an artist? I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, but these are the, these are the kinds of things I think about not, not to kill the institution, but to help it be reinvigorated because now it has a a dance partner, you know? Yeah. And Um, I think, you know, and some of these ideas, um, you know, they're, they're relatively new. The ideas that like, Oh, here's an MFA and this is the only, the mm-hmm. only way that that's historically, it's a fairly world new, war two. It's, yeah. it's such a new idea from drill instructors that served in world war two. Yeah. And wanted a new Academy. You look at, um, I mean, go to like a Wikipedia page for any like great thinker from like the 1600s. And then they'll like list like 12 jobs that are like just all over the place. Mm-hmm. It's like they were an engineer 
and a philosopher and a architect and a painter. Right. And it's like, how, like, how is that? And our mind today goes, well, who taught them and told them they could do that? And it's like, no, they just did that. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't because they just said, oh, this is what I am. And they kind of like self-manifested something, Mm -hmm. but it really was a, like, there was not somebody who just had to be the, the, like the person that bestows and almost like knights you with Mm -hmm. the title and the knowledge. And I bring this up with my students. Um, we start off when we talk about professionalization and I'm like, you know, what is, what, how do we get the word professional? Like what right. does it even mean? Right. And so we go through the etymology of it um, and get to the fact that uh, at the heart of the idea behind a professional is a person not who has been given some piece of paper mm-hmm. or has been kind of, you know, run through the gauntlet and, you know, they've dealt with all the the different things that go on. But it's somebody who just with their mouth has said, this is what I will be. Mm-hmm. And so that profession um, aspect of it, I think we forget. And so I end up having a lot of students who say things like, well, you know, when I, when I get, when I graduate, yeah. I'll be this thing. Yep. And I'm like, no, I think there's, there's something else right. that we need to be doing while we're in school to understand, like you're saying, that there's a lot more going on and things that are happening. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, so we're trying, you know, you know I, not to get in so deep, you know, we're probably getting close on time, but there's the, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussions around, you know, we've talked with Chino about this and equity and issues of, um, making a space where everyone's welcome to be an artist or designer, you know, and, and in the institution, there's a lot of fighting right now over that. Like you have a lot of students that are like, I want I want to be represented and I want to feel like I have a place. And I think that's a critical issue. That's super important. And, and I think some of the importance of that starts where we're not just in the institution, but outside of it. And so you, you, um, institutions grow out of soil. And so if we're not present in both places, if we're not present in the soil and nourishing it, you know, if you're not, if you're not learning to be a neighbor, um, to whoever is your neighbor, you're not going to know how to do it in an institution when there's when there seems to be more at stake. That's for teachers and for you know that's for administrators. That's for everyone, definitely all of us, students, all of us. We need to learn that. And so, um, if you strip away some of our categories that render us with these debates, then it dislodges some of the ideas of who can be who can be one and who needs approval. Uh, uh, but see, the institution needs money. I mean, see, you see, you see the conflict. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's a tangle. It's a huge tangle. And, uh, I love teaching. I love, I mean, I love mm-hmm. reading books. I love te- I love, I love where I teach. Yeah. And so, um, so I've tried to think, and I think that's probably what Shaco Art Space is in a lot of ways is like, I try to think like to come alongside the place where I work and, and create new avenues that, that complement and do some of the work we're talking about. And like, you know, we've talked about doing integrated art. I live in the North side. And it's historically African-American neighborhood. And I love, I just love the place. I love the people. I love my neighbors. Um, it's, it's, it's the best place I've ever lived. Sorry, California. Um, and the idea that maybe there could be something organic that happens there, like an integrated art fair yeah, where people of their own care and interest can kind of, take on some of the the life and vitality of it. And like that, that could happen in a place like Richmond with all the other great things happening in Richmond with a great school like VCU. Like 
I think it's going to require more things like that. Um, and then you got to look at it like it's a multi-generational thing. So then what does it look like for a kid to grow up in that neighborhood and then go to an institution? Some of what we're fighting for is not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over multi-generations. So then you got to have multi-generational fighters. And I think a lot of the fighters right now are not multi-generation. They're instantaneous fighters, which is important, but isn't the only grounds to fight for. We're fighting for future generations too. You see what I'm saying? Definitely. And yeah. I, I think this kind of gets back, like even when we talk about like, what's the importance and value of art? Um, uh, I think some of the best art I've ever had uh, in terms of experiences um, that I've ever had a a real experience with um, has has changed the way I view my human scale, mm-hmm. um, either time wise, size wise, whatever it may be. And I think that um, you know that human scale is something that we have to fight against because here we are. I'm I'm an individual and I exist for seventy to eighty years on average. Um, and so we take that human scale and that first person experience. And I think we overlay it onto a lot of the institutions and practices we have. And so we say something like, um, I can only exist to the detriment of other people. Mm -hmm. So my importance is contingent upon everybody else's kind of like non-importance. Yeah. And that's not the case at all. No. Because I think that the, the times where I have felt most apt in what I do, um, or most helpful has always been like you're saying in relation to somebody else. Yeah. And so if we apply, apply that same thinking on a larger scale to things like institutions, then we can sit here and say, you know, shocker art space can exist, but also it can't exist if there aren't other institutions Correct. within That's the exactly space. Right. So then why am I worried about telling somebody about a show at another gallery? Like right. it doesn't impact what I do in a totally. negative way. Yep. It actually helps because it says, Hey, we're doing something that's a part of a much larger conversation. And yeah. these voices are hugely valid. Who wants to go to a garden that just has one bean, bean plant or something? Yeah. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. It's not the best garden to go to. You don't go to a mall with one store. Who wants to go to a place that doesn't give you a number six? They only give you a number one. Yeah. I want, I want, I want five options, six. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and also I mean, like, you know, think of like a library with one book. Yeah. Think of a, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a, a gallery with one piece of art. Yeah. You know, yeah all of these yeah. things we, we want, uh, not just the context of it, but the robustness that comes from right. the number right. of things that pop up. So, um, I think a nightmare scenario would be to, for like shock art space to be the only gallery in a city. Yeah. I mean, not just the weight of that, Bleak. but then somebody would look at it and say, well, there's only one of them. Is it that well, so big a deal? Yeah. Or, or it would just, it wouldn't feel like it. Ha- it's, uh, and maybe you're in a city you're listening and you only have one art gallery. And so like, this is an important thing about like, is what, how do you create a context for more than how do you leverage right. what you've started so that it replicates itself like a, yes. like a tumbleweed or something like, I mean, these are distribute some seeds or, you know, different cultural contexts necessitate different things to different degrees. But, um, Yeah, I th- you know, so I think wherever however you spin it, you have you you get into the category of self-sacrifice. Meaning if you're going to try to solve the problem, you're going to have to lay something down that you do. Yeah. Or you're going to have to wait for someone else to do it. And then and then you got to think you got to try to think like, well, you have to be good at waiting. Um you have to be a good waiter then, you know, and, and I'm not mean that condescending. I mean, I'm not, I don't think everybody can help because of 
the state they're in. Yeah. But I do think like most of the time, if you're really going to make an impact, you're going to have to be sacrificial and, and it's hard to do that. It, 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 um, it's hard to do that and you may not get the, the outcomes you want right away. Maybe not even in your lifetime. That's how, that's how I've had to think about this. I think, you know, Laura and I years ago, I had to start, you started thinking like, okay, realistically, I got to start thinking about, you know, well past myself. And now that you guys are on board, you know, even when we talk about this podcast, it's like you mentioned something about, you know, like 10 years from now. And it's like, you got to kind of think that way. Yeah. Um, not to get out from under what's in front of you, but to give it perspective and context for, pot- for potential. And, uh, but it requires sacrifice. It just, you just can't get away from it. It, re- it requires, um, it requires work to get a better framework for how we think about things. Like we, you know, we're at a point where I think there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And I'm not, I think right now we're, we're pretty polarized. Notice dead institutions. And then you look at our political institution, the polarization to me says something about the state we're in as far as, you know, you made a comment about a lot of people making apocalyptic stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, I think apocalyptic literature is different than the, our cinematic understanding of apocalypse. So the cinematic understanding, which is like cars flying everywhere and the earth ending, that kind of apocalyptic thinking is around because I think we're seeing a kind of institutional death. So, um, yeah, it's like visualizing an impasse. Yeah. 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 So, you know, but, but then there's like things that die and come back, you know, or like, like, you know, like worms go into a, I've said this before, but worms go into a chrysalis or whatever caterpillar goes into a chrysalis and it dies. Mm-hmm. It literally dies. It's like one of my favorite things to think about. Cause I can't wrap my mind. I watched some scientists do a talk on this and they're like, they, they were like the world leading people on this. I just said this at another review, but you know, it's like, they're like, yeah, we only know 35% of what actually is happening. But what we know is the caterpillar goes into a chrysalis. It dies there's no genetic material. There's no, there's no blueprint for butterfly. It's not there. And then the chrysalis pops open and a butterfly butterfly comes out. And I was like, dude, that's basically a team in MacGyver. Like yeah, they totally just is. go into a, into a garage and they'd be like, here's a wrench and a stick of gum. And they come out with like a van with a wing on it and a gun machine, you know, like an <laughs> yeah. Uzi. And you're like, there wasn't enough parts there in time to make that. But how did that, you know, it's magic. Um, so I'm saying all that to say um, death isn't always the uh, the end of it. Um, and and we have a, you have a choice uh, with what you do with this stuff. You know, like you just got to kind of step in a different direction. You got to talk to people you don't talk to. You got to invite someone into your world a little more and not be mad at them when they don't get it and, and be, because you don't get it, <laughs> you know, and because we weren't supposed to get it, get it in that way, you know, and, uh, thing, good things take time. Um, they don't, they don't happen instantaneously. How many, how many, I don't, I'm asking for real. Can you think what actually is good that happens instantaneously and never stops being good that you just get it immediately. And then that's it. It's just, that's it. Can you think of anything? No, I really can't. Cause I think, most of that stuff, like we would, to be completely fair, I think we would say the thing that you get instantaneously, like is more like you're talking about, like just like a piece of candy. Yeah. Right? It's like it's a the piece immediacy. Of candy. Yeah. There's something about it that cheapens yeah. what happens. 
but at the same time, I think it, that immediacy also pushes against like the fact that like work and understanding and coming together and uh, building, like all these are difficult. Right. But I think as artists and designers, it's at the core of what we do. Like you've talked about, like all of these different things ranging from like your experiences as a child, the people you learn under the things that you enjoy doing the input from other people. Like all of this is coalesced into some sort of practice where what you've been doing has been refining ideas Correct. into, uh, in the case of you objects. Mm -hmm. And that's at the core, I think of what we do as people that make the design, the paint, the build, um, it's taking kind of the pieces and putting them back together right. in and ways that make meaning. This gave me, you know, people go like, well, how, you didn't go to school to run a gallery and you, you're not a curator. I was like, no, I've curated shows forever. I like, I got formal training on, I mean, I look at, you can look at paintings, you can look at people's paintings the way and compose them in a space, the way you would compose a painting, like you've over compartmentalized. And so a care for the world, culture, care, the stewardship, caring for the world, uh, can extend outside of uh, a 10 by 10 foot painting, you know, where you've set the conditions and the variables, like it can extend into a gallery space. It can extend into a city. Uh, we compose cities, we compose scale changes, material changes to an extent, but there's a continuity and a, a sense of feel and care that's implicit there. I mean, um, cult, uh, uh, curators were, were culture caregivers actually, um, also out of like a church context, like in the gallery of the makeup of your kind of cathedral like church, it was called a gallery and they had people that were curators and that curator meant culture care of the space. So they had work in there. I mean, it's interesting. And so um, I've been curating shows for a while now, a long time, often on all different kinds of places, but I don't see a huge leap from being a painter and a curator and art educator. For me, they're not um, schismatic. They're not, um, at odds. It's a question of energy, care, desire, capacity, ability, and knowing your limitations, which means you have to know how to ask for help when you need it. Um, but, uh, they're not necessarily, they don't have to be problems. This kind of either or thesis antithesis kind of thinking sometimes is helpful. Uh, but other times it's very, it's just so problematic because it postulates, uh, either or dilemmas that are false dilemmas. And, um, and I think part of it, we want it that way because we want the value. We're value hungry. We want to be esteemed so much so that we'll, we'll, we will we'll trample over the the beauty of the small flower for the larger rose bush. Yeah. And maybe more of us need to hang out with the smaller flower, spend more time. You, you ever do that social game where you, you look at something long enough that everybody else starts looking with you? Like in high yeah. school, I used to do that. I used to like look up. And then a crowd would room around you, you know, and they'd all be looking up too. And then you just leave. Nobody yeah. there knows what they're looking at. Right. But they saw like all it took was a few people and everybody followed. Well, that's kind of funny. And, you, you know, you kind of make fun of it. But if you flip flop that, it says something about the way we're wired. Now, if you're doing that in earnest and you slow down and you draw more attention to things that we're, un, we're not noticing, more people will start to notice because we're made. We're just we're wired that way. And so. um change the economy, the value scales of what an artist is, make it more real, more elastic, more plausible, and it'll become more satisfying because it'll be in proportion and scale to, to where life's really at. You know, the idea of the, the starving artist who's killing themselves to make art. You know, I once had a teacher in grad school 
I, I uh, came back from the doctor's when I found out I had liver problems. And it was scary because it could mean like death and liver disease. And I came to, I had a critique that day in grad school and, and not, not here at VCU, but in California. And this teacher is looking at my work and she says, I, I don't think you're willing to die for these paintings. And the irony was, I, you know, in a way I was already. And the, the mythos and the reality collided and the real far outweighed the allure and power of this sappy statement, this yeah. careless statement that I should die for my art. Whoever said that you should die for your art? Where does that come from? And that I started to tear up because that person didn't have the emotional capacity to understand the news I'd just gotten from the doctor. Mm. They could not carry that weight because, because, because I was, what I had encountered was not sentimental, it was fact. It had real weight to it, had real impact to it. And it, the real exposed the fake in her demanding that my work wasn't lush enough and I didn't look like I was willing to die for it. Never, never, never forget it. I never forgot it. It, 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 it was like a salient moment stuck in my head. And, and, um, and I said, I will not treat students like that. I will not treat people like that. You don't need to die for your art. Art's, art's pretty good. Um, the world is so good that we die on it, all of us, and it continues to go forward without us. Yeah. You don't, the world doesn't need us to die for it. You know, we, we need to work to care for it culture care but mm -hmm. we don't need to die for it we need to care for it because it's resilient you know um we may not be around to appreciate it, and that's our biggest concern we need to care for the earth yeah but you know it'll probably go on in some kind of rock state but it point being is um some of our ideas are just so busted man and we teach them as truisms and they're never tested and so um we live in this kind of platonic disconnect between the physical world and the spiritual so we spiritualize the arts in a way that's divorced from reality. We don't look at it as deep physical work. We look at it as spiritualized work that's divorced from this and is more of an, a mental ascent or escape out of this world. And so it's disembodied and sentimental. And sentimental, I mean by that, that it, it really, really ignores the fact, the brute facts of life and over escalates or over elevates the good stuff. And so um, it leaves you in an impossible state of expectation that, that is bound to let you down. I'm so grouchy today. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Right. If because, you're listening and you think, gosh, what a grouchy know it all. I'm sorry. I, I'm still thinking about this stuff. Do you, I mean, I'm not, I'm not feeling that at all. Okay. I really, I mean, what I'm feeling coming across in this conversation is really that there, there is like I me, mean, you said early on, like you, um, you were a seeker within all of this. And I feel like that that's something that hasn't gone away. There's still a wrestling with yes. ideas and wrestling totally. with the reality of, uh, the fact that, um, in some ways we've been told for a lot of years that art is this monolithic institutional thing. Yet mm -hmm. here we are as dynamic people that have changed as we go through it. Um, and we are understanding in different ways. So it's like you said earlier, theory into practice, like mm -hmm. what does it look like as our ideas change as Correct. things, uh, um, merge with other things as they become larger or smaller. Um, and that's a lot of what I'm hearing. And I think that it's actually kind of a fantastic point to kind of put a pin in everything today. Right. Because I think that, that space where we kind of say, you know, Hey, I know a whole lot of things, but at the end of the day, I don't know. I think that's a fantastic place for a lot of institutions with art and design to be, because what that does, it does empower a space of seeking and exploration and a way of, uh, letting art and design really attach to culture in myriad ways. 
Correct. Um, so it's not saying here is the okay expression. Here is the okay practitioner. Here is the okay ideology. But instead it's saying, hey, we've got a huge amount of resources here in terms of ideas and thought and history. And what does that mean? Right. And how do we understand that better? Right. And I, so I think that's a fantastic place to, to kind of stop for the day because, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put like an answer on that. Right. You know what I mean? Like I kind of want to leave that conversation open-ended in a sense. Cause I mean, you and I, I'm sure both share this feeling that we'd love for people to talk to us. We'd love for this conversation to happen again. Yeah. And it's going to morph into all the different folks we talk to. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, that's, no, that's it. Um, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think if anything, I'm just trying, you know, I think if, yeah, we go back, we look at, we, we, um, we want to parse out, I think we're, I think we, when we thought about this podcast, we wanted to plot out big general zones, the first season, and then in, in dip into particular facets. I feel like if you don't do the big stuff first and you start with this, this, the particulars, yeah, then you can give the false impression that you're assuming this is the extent of the discussion. And so we've excluded a lot, but that's just because we're limited in our capacity and the, the conversation is too big for one. Um, but we're trying to plot out big range to then move into very specific questions that are maybe more down to earth and direct to, you know, a group of people that have a set of interests as much as we can or bring in an expert. Um, you know, I think as we move forward, we'll be, you know, we'll be doing some critiques. We'll have some, interesting avenues uh do we mention the patreon or is it, i just did yeah we we totally can i okay. mean there's there's a lot of ways i think that we want to get people involved because at the heart of what we do with shocker art space um it really is about kind of opening up and doing a lot of what you've talked about today i mean shocker art space when you hear um when anybody hears about what you've talked about today ryan is right. not going to be a surprise it's going to feel like a natural outflow yep. of the fact that, you know, like you said, you've had all these thoughts and these ideas and now they're coming into practice Correct. as this space. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a fantastic thing because what we want is more people to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so the conversation gets bigger, just like we're talking about with art in general, yeah. more people to be involved, more experiences and expressions and things like that. So that the questions actually are becoming and seeming to be as large as they are. Yes, you're 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 bringing things into an alignment, and then you can continue to expand it out, march it out, and that includes tension and degrees of readiness. Like so, for instance, um, I've worked with artists that have shown with us that weren't ready to show a couple of years ago, and then they had a, an amazing show. And so there's the deferment and delay. Not every you know. So in the inclusive ambitions and and in the the mission is to include, but on mission dynamically so not include like here's my collection of different things on a mantle we are people alive with a life to live not to be displayed so mm-hmm. so i want to we want to have a space that is um uh is necessarily going to see uh different kinds of things come into focus and people and so on but on mission to something that is expressive and ongoing and extending and bigger um and deeper you know uh, in, we talk about things like more generative, some specificities kind of coming out of this. And, um, and if that's true, then like anything, there will be growing pains. There will be times where it doesn't work. There will be, you know, uh, artists that don't get to show right away and some that do, um, 
because it's it's more part and parcel and consistent to the way things work, if that makes sense. And but but the value of people is not going to be disregarded. And that's yeah, one of the things I wanted to say is as we close out is uh, one of our fundamental assumptions is people are are intrinsically valuable before you do anything. So when when I come to look at people's art that present art to exhibit here or work with us, their value as a human being is not in question for me at all. Um, um, their unique imprint on what they do is is not really a question. It's a question of like where where something fits in at a time when we're you know establishing programming that kind of thing. And there's room to grow, you know, like the, I told the story about the artists who came in and they had never shown before, never done anything. They made their first painting. It's actually a good thing for someone to come alongside that person and help them see that like this maybe isn't the right time to show, but that's not telling them they shouldn't do it or that they're not valuable as a person. And we need more of that. You know, we need, we need more of that go between that's not elitist and says no, never, but just says not right now, but let's work on some ways for you to develop. You know, how can I, how can I give you whatever I've been given and let's see where you go with that. And I think that's, a, I think that I hope that that is something that happens, you know, so we, we do, we will have, uh, other outlets, you know, critiquing avenues and we will be launching a Patreon. I don't know if, if they can find it now yet. Or yeah, not. they totally can. You can just yeah. go to Patreon and search for uh Shaka art space and you can find us. Um, we've got some plans for like how that plays out, but, right. but really like one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to get as much, um, as much interaction as possible in whatever yeah. ways we can, exactly. right? Because uh, a lot of the value of what we do, it only exists if the people are involved at every step of the way, whether that's uh, the people who are making the art and design, whether that's the people who are consuming it, the people who are collecting it, the people who are viewing it, um, the people who are asking questions. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback from folks who have said things like, we love what you're doing. It's great to hear the conversations. We really like that. Right. And that's fantastic. But also I I'm interested in hearing points where people say, you know, you said this thing, I don't really get what you were totally. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like, I would like to hear more about that. Yeah. Or, you know, you said this and it made me think about this topic. I'd love for y'all to discuss that at some point yeah, and work yeah, yeah. it out. Um, more or less creating a space where this conversation can really happen because we all need to be a part of that dialogue right. for what we do to really flourish. Yeah. We got to do it enough until other people start to start to enter in and, and have uh, things they want to talk about or here. And then in, and we're coming into this with the mindset that we have a lot to learn. Right. And I think that that's, you know, I've got a lot behind us, but still got a lot ahead of us and we want to leave as much as we can for others to take on and go. And, um, and so one, one thing I wanted to do also is just thank you for the continued support we've received for our GoFundMe. Um, we, if you, if, if you have the presence of mind to do it and you haven't donated, please do. Uh, we have a $30,000 goal for this GoFundMe and we're currently at $8,696, which is awesome. It's fantastic. But still, still a ways off of our goal. This goal is vital to the success of the space in the short term. And so if you're listening and you have not given, um, would you consider giving? Um, also you can, you can find our GoFundMe on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and if you, in addition to giving would consider sharing it, and if you feel like you've, you know, been positively impacted by, by what we're doing, you know, we're really just getting started and, um, and we've got a lot of work behind us, but we got a lot of work ahead of us, but it's going to, it's only going to happen with help with support. 
And so we're, if you're listening and you know a corporate sponsor or you know someone who has a business that might, might want to come alongside us and find a way to partner with us, um, we're ready to work with uh, uh, a multitude of people consistent to the vision that you've kind of heard. And it's born out of an honest experience and, um, and a, an extreme desire to see something left better than when we found it. And, um, and so, yeah, so we just want to thank you for your support, but we also want to just continue to ask people to share and consider, um, we keep talking about our new website. It's so close to being done. Yeah. Um, when you work with volunteers that have full-time jobs and, and other things going on in their lives, it can go a little slower, but we have a great, uh, team working on the, on the website. And so, um, you know, that we'll, we'll be excited to release that to you soon. Um, and uh, I think that's everything we got for today. I yeah, I think that's it. I mean, this has been a great conversation. And hopefully with all things, uh, all these episodes, this conversation is is not an ending point, but a jumping off point for more Correct. conversations. Yep. So thank you so much for uh, sharing everything with us today, Ryan. It was fantastic. And um, we'll uh, catch you all on the next episode. Thanks so much for joining and taking part. See ya. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottom.